Hi, this is Authors on the Air, and my name is David Corbett. I'm the author of several novels and two books on writing, The, uh, the Art of Character and The Compass of Character. But today, the focus is going to be on author Matt Coyle. He's the author of eight books in the Rick Cahill series. We're going to be talking about his latest, the eighth in that series, Last Redemption. He uh, spent 10 years working on his first novel, and that's standard for the genre, in case any of you want to know. The old saw is that they give you 10 years to write the first book and 10 months to write the second. Well, those 10 years paid off because ever since Matt's debut novel, he's been nothing but a star in the crime field. All of his books get nominated for numerous awards. He's much loved and uh, very highly praised within the genre. And it is a total delight for me to be sitting here with him today because I had a chance to read this book. I loved it beginning to end. And Matt, thanks so much for being with us. Well, thank you, David. I think I'm going to uh, record that intro and make all my, however I'm interviewed again, use that, because that's probably the nicest interview, uh, intro I've ever had. Appreciate it. Thanks. <laughs> and, and, I, and I meant every word of it. Um, in, in your bio on your, your uh, website, you mentioned the fact that you were very much inspired by Chandler's uh, The Simple Art of Murder, which was a seminal essay in crime fiction where he said that, you know, crime doesn't happen in the parlor or in the lilacs. It happens in the mean streets. Right. And that the, uh, the hero of the crime novel has to be someone who can walk those mean streets, but who is not himself mean. And I think that's a really excellent description of Rick Cahill. Uh, I think of him as a decent man in a dangerous business. And I wonder how much Chandler's description sort of inspired your creation of Rick. I, th I think definitely inspired it. I think there's there's so much of Chandler that has snuck in me, into me through osmosis and and Ross McDonald as well. Um, yeah, I, I certainly thought about that very early on. The um, kind of the night, but um, Rick is, is probably darker than uh, Philip Marlowe ever was. Um, and yes, he is a good man, but he he, I think he really uh, walks a tightrope between. He's always doing what he thinks is the right thing, but a tightrope between um, doing uh, what society accepts is right and what he thinks is right. And that is something that he um, thinks about, but then does what he does anyway. Um, and his challenge is to not become too much driven by that, to not become his own, um, I can't think of the word, but kind of judge and jury and, and yeah. a lot of times he is and it's something that it's it's on his mind he thinks about and um and yet he still kind of follows that well that that really uh comes up a lot and especially with this the theme of this book which is redemption and in particular last redemption i mentioned that there was a section here that i really wanted to um to read aloud and i, I hope you don't mind if i do that it's pretty, pretty yeah. short but it really does frame what I consider to be the sort of the moral terrain that Rick walks in this book. Now, as, as we enter this book, he's married uh, to, uh, to Leah, and she, who is now pregnant. And this is a new development in his life. And uh, he's been contacted by his best friend and sidekick, Moria, whose son, she fears, is violating a TRO that was filed by his girlfriend. And that, of course, is breaking the law. And she's prayed for him. And she wants um, Rick to surveil him. And if he does violate the TRO, to sort of stop it. 
But something else has happened in Rick's life. And I thought this was ingenious and, and in fact, pretty daring on your part is that you've given him a really serious psychological condition resulting from the many grueling beatings and, and other uh, assaults that he suffered through the course of the series. And that, as he says, it's like the, the football disease, CTE. And, uh, and he's suffering from that in ways that he's, he's suffering fugue states. Um, and I, first of all, before I start the reading, I was just, what inspired that? Because I, because that's tricky. When you have a protagonist yeah. who's psychologically impaired, it really creates, you talk about tight ropes for the author. Yeah. That's quite one. How, how, how did that come about? Well, it, uh, it you know, <clears throat> I do question the choice at times, but, um, <laughs> when I, when I first started writing Rick 20 years ago, um, or thereabouts. Um, I wanted him to, there are two things. I'll, I'll talk about the, the, the one here. One rule that one rule was that everything that happened to him, every decision he made that was bad, every bad decision um, reverberated. He couldn't get away with it. And, and, and that was left emotional scars. The people have read the series have certainly um, learned about and they've been rubbed raw, but also affecting him physically. And uh, not only, He's had many concussions as a as a private investigator, but he played. He, he was a, a boxer as a kid. He played Pop Warner football. He played high school football. He played college football, and so there's all this head trauma that anybody in that situation, pretty much anybody in that situation, is going to have. And so I thought, well, if I'm to be to be real, as be as real as I can in this in fiction, that's going to have a, an effect on him. So. You know, I mean, CT is very much in the news or has been for the last eight years or so, but it just, I can't imagine he doesn't have it with all the trauma he's had. So he's going to have to have it. And how does it play out? How does it affect him? Yeah, it's kind of a dumb thing to do. If you're writing a series, you want the guy to continue on because, uh, you know, the outcome's not good. And he's on a, he's on a path. He's definitely on a path right now. So it just came from his life experience. And I thought to be fair uh, to the readers, to myself, to reality. He's got CTE, or he's been diagnosed. We'll just say he's been diagnosed, but you can't well, really get the further diagnosis until after death. Yeah. Well, the um, the, but the, it really comes in in some crucial places, and I think it really raises the stakes in some really significant ways in a really interesting way. I, I really commend you on that. When I, when I first started reading, I go, I started talking. Uh oh, this is going to get. Uh, we'll just see what, how he does it, and you, I think you pulled it off really, really well. But so that's when when I mentioned a secret condition, just for those uh, listening, that's what we're talking about. So this is the section I wanted to read, and it's relatively early in the book. I've given Leah plenty of reasons to worry. In the first year and a half we've been together, I've been shot in the face, stabbed in the throat, and nearly disemboweled. But that was in the past. Almost all of my detecting over the last year was done in my upstairs office, tapping on a keyboard or talking on the phone. Now I freelance for major Southern California corporations, conducting employee and executive background checks, among other innocuous tasks. The work was steady and paid pretty well, better than the process serving infidelity and workers' comp fraud cases that made up the bulk of my former income. But every once in a while, in that old life, I'd take a case that was about more than money or cheating or fraud, a case that mattered down deep for the person who hired me and for my own soul. Some cases left scars 
on the people who hired me and the people I investigated, and on me. But the work had meaning. Now I'd settled into a quiet life with a regular income. I had a woman I loved and a miracle baby on the way. But I felt like I was driving with the parking brake on, that my skills weren't being directed at what they did best. Becoming a private de detective eight years ago had been a reawakening for me. It had given me a purpose, a quest, to help people who had nowhere else to go to find the truth, their truth, my quest, my redemption. Just the thought of something as mundane as surveilling Luke McFarland had sparked that feeling I'd missed over the last year. Morva needed my help to keep her son out of trouble, a case that mattered, one that couldn't simply be filed by the next San Diego private investigator listed on Google if I turned it down. I was needed. I had a mission. I mattered. Even with my worsening secret condition, I felt more alive on the drive back from Morva's house than I had in a year. And it was a selfish feeling. My life had changed. I had other responsibilities than just myself in a home from midnight, his dog. I had a soon-to-be family to consider, to be responsible for, and I couldn't abandon them. What I love about that section is it, it answers to what we talked about before, the notion of a mission, the notion of the, the quest of the private investigator is sort of the reincarnation of the knight errant. I remember that um, uh, Robert Parker talked about that a lot. And yet here what he's, what he's getting at is a, a, a level of moral complexity that I found really fascinating. He says, sure, but that's kind of selfish now. It's not just about me or what matters to me. I've got other people responsible for me now. And I found that tension really great. But you mentioned something earlier that he has a tendency to be his own judge and jury. And I, I felt that in this section that he was sort of taking himself to the, to the woodshed and was really being hardest on himself. And that's why the need for redemption comes in. He feels these, these responsibilities in an incredibly tangible, personal way um, that requires, as he sees it, it, it's not enough just to accomplish it, that there's a, there's a wrong that has to be righted and that wrong is in him. Have I got that right? Yeah, you got that right. It, it, um, it's kind of funny. He's in a situation now where he's fighting his own nature. Um, he's happier than he's ever been, um, except for the disease. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's in the best. He, he's, he never thought his first wife was murdered. And uh, that's part of his redemption because he's always felt guilty about what he should have been doing the night she was killed. And, and yesterday's echo, well, that's it actually happens before yesterday's echo, but that's that's where you learn about it. And so there's that redemptive, but yeah, there's the redemption of his, of his own soul. And how can he juggle these two different things, his own nature and this, this kind of knight's iron, like you said, that he feels he was the reawakening when he became a private investigator is that, yeah, I was, I was put on this earth to do something else. And now I have a chance at real, um, a real life, real joy, a family, he thought he'd never have a kid. He's 42 now, I think. And um, he has to balance that with uh, this, his nature. And, um, and, and also the sense of, of redemption because he's done some things. He's done some things in other books and other in his life 
that are definitely um, definitely would give him jail time, if not a long jail time. And he made a decision at the time. This is what's right. Um, this is what needs to be done. But did it. So he's got all that working. Yeah. Well, this brings up something. I remember uh, S.J. Roseanne once, and she was talking about Chandler. She said the thing about Marlowe is, um, I mean, it's easy to see him as just sort of like a Virgil figure, that um, he understands hell, and the client is like Dante, and his job is to lead the client through hell and allow them out the back end, even though he can never escape, because he's sort of morally tainted uh, or soiled. Yeah. And and yet I see that there's, in, in, in your book, it isn't just about that he sees he's soiled, there's also, he, he's really striving that there he may have a way out as well. And he's striving for that action that can maybe help him escape that as well, which I think just really brought him alive in a way that I don't think I, I see very often, um, or not as often as I'd like in detective fiction. It was really wonderful. And I, I, I want to touch on that because at the end of the book, and boy, the end of this book is a rocket ride. And I can't, not, I cannot recommend this book more on just what happens, not just through the course of the book, but as that the pace accelerates and as the dangers escalate and amplify near the end and the twists come at you right and left. It just, I, I, I was, I, I mean, I often have to read for interviews, you know, and sometimes it's great and sometimes it's not. And this one was great. This was really, really fun. Thank you. And at the end, at the end of the book, um, near the end, when if things are particularly hairy, and they are particularly hairy at the end of this book, he, he's reflecting on, you know, where he's at and how he got here. Two years ago, I could have lived with the consequences of my mistakes or died with them. I had a life but didn't have very much to live for, except redemption and revenge. Redemption for actions I'd taken, revenge for those taken by others. Now with my final clock speeding out ahead of me, because with a CTE, you realize this, he may only have 10, 15 years to live. The lifespan for people with CTE is, is usually early 50s, and he, as you say, he's in his early 40s. Right. Now with my final clock speeding out ahead of me, I was looking forward for the first time in 16 years, looking forward for the first time in 16 years. I had Leah and a child on the way, family, a chance to be a father, to love unconditionally and raise a child to be better than me, a last redemption. And I can't help but, but ask, I mean, this is the eighth Rickhamville book. Whenever I see the word last, in, in the title, and I think last redemption, I'm tempted to ask, uh, is this the last we're going to see of Rick Cahill? <laughs> oh, there's a long story behind that. Uh, <laughs> um, no. Okay. My intention was um, to take a pause here and um, do something else, which I uh, hadn't really ha zeroed in on. Uh, my publishers, who I love, the, the Gussins at Ocean View, wanted uh, two more books, and um, which I, I definitely want to write Rick in the future. Of course, his future is shorter now. Um, but we came to an agreement, so I'm, I'm writing book. I'm finished, trying to finish book nine right now. 
Um, but yeah, the, you know, the title came at the end. The titles for me are, are, are always hard, and that could be two words because that's the way the first one was. So um, it wasn't the initial last. It wasn't the initial uh, title. I didn't really have one, but it kind of summed up the book. It's kind of things come um, thematically when I don't really mean them to, or I didn't want to think about it. And I think it is a perfect title, but I <laughs> it uh, and it certainly could have been. It certainly could have been the last book. Um, I'm glad but, it's not. Thank you. But I do. I agree with you. I think you put him now in a place where, because of that constrained time frame, or the fear that that time is constrained, yeah. that that whole notion of well, then what is my life about, and how am I, how am I going to resolve this battle between my nature? And my new obligation becomes all the more poignant and intense. Right, and and uh, I'm glad you I'm glad you read those passages because, as you know, you you uh, write the book far in advance, and then you edit it and you read it some more. I mean, you read the book. I read the book like seven, eight times, but that was a long time ago. And sometimes you forget some of the stuff that's in there, and uh, those are pretty good passages. So thanks. But um, <laughs> I thought so. The thing that no, I I, I wish the rest of the book was that good. Um, the thing is now he does. He, it's he's selfishly. I've got something to live for now, but also, I'm going to be a father. I have response. I have to live. You know, I have to help raise this child and this woman who's fallen in love with me, who I promised to slow my life down. And when he was thinking of that, I think that he was in a kind of a dire situation. My recollection. Um, you know, yes. I, I have to live. I have a responsibility, not just to me to live, but I have to live for others now, not just me. Not just for my dog, midnight at home. Um, so yeah, it, it is a it is a kind of a full circle for him and um, responsibilities, but still kind of makes the same decision. Well, you can't escape your nature. I mean, character is fate. Um, Heraclitus told us that God knows how many thousands of years ago. By the way, choosing midnight as the name of the dog. There were a couple times I was reading. And he said, I, you know, I, I entered the apartment and midnight greeted me. And I thought, wait, no, that's not a metaphor. That's the dog. <laughs> I, know. I know. I almost named a lab midnight one time, but I named him magic instead. My very first, my first. Black lab. Well, I, I think we've pretty much hit our, our 20 minute uh, sweet spot. Is there anything else you'd like to talk to your, your readers about, about what's coming up with this book number nine or uh, anything else that's going on right now? You well, I'll give a little... Are you going to be able to do a virtual tour of anything with this book? Well, I'm going to, uh, that's just a good question. I'm going to do a, probably both. Um, the launch for Last Redemption is November 30th. I'll be at Warwick's live so far uh, in La Jolla. And um, I'm also going to be live at Book Carnival in Orange on the 4th of December. That's our second. I might be live at Poison Pen. We're definitely doing something. We don't know yet whether it'll be via um, Zoom or uh, live and other things schedule. I'm doing Mysterious Galaxy. I'm doing Murder by the Book. Those are Mysterious Galaxy will be live and that's in Jan uh, January, but still kind of setting things up because it's so, we're still at that point. I never thought, you know, it's funny, I don't know, a year and a half ago when COVID hit and we went to the 15 days and then it got longer and I, I felt sorry for all my friends that had books coming out and I thought, well, at least by December, well, my last, well, the last year I thought, well, I'll be doing live stuff, but of course, you know, I still may not have to deal in live stuff this year, but um, that's what's coming up. And uh, yeah, I am working on book nine, of, uh, and I do have a name, uh, <laughs> name for book nine. 
called Doom Legacy, which you know kind of fits in for Rick's thing. But I want to say, I, I, David, I know we kind of made it difficult for you to uh, be able to read the book, and I appreciate you taking the time because writers know how valuable time is, and, <clears throat> and we made it really hard for you and condensed, so I really appreciate you doing it. Well, it's, it, it was a little bit daunting technologically, but uh, the <laughs> easiest part was reading the book. I got to tell you, I just it was a gas, and I really enjoy it, and I really want to encourage everybody pick up this book. You will thank me. Well, so anyway, this is Authors on the Air. We've had Matt Coyle on. His new book is Last Redemption, comes out at the end of November. Check it out. You can pre-order it on Amazon or or wherever you'd like. Order from your your local independent if you'd like to do that. And um, I encourage you to do so. So have a lovely day. Thanks so much, Matt, for being with us. And uh, till next time. Thank you.